What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Dr. David Warren. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you. Good to see you. Uh, David is a lecturer in the Department of Jewish, Islamic, and Middle Eastern Studies at Washington University in St. Louis, obviously in America. He is a scholar of contemporary Islam, politics, and media in the Middle East, with a particular focus on the understudied Arab Gulf states and Islamic soft power. David has kindly agreed to talk to us about Islamic soft power. Before we, we go to David, the other day, I read the following remarks in an article published by the Council on Foreign Relations, which is an American think tank, and it said, in nearly every Muslim majority country, Islam is an important and sometimes the only ideological currency that mixes effectively with more standard real politique. With the decline of both socialism and pan-Arabism in the Middle East, the only real ideological competition to Islam comes from nationalism. But nationalism, by definition, is difficult to promote outside one's own nation. This means that governments, even relatively secular and progressive ones, have a powerful incentive to insert Islam into their foreign policy, using religious ideas to increase their prestige and promote their interests abroad, to deploy, in other words, what we call Islamic soft power. That's the expression. And the authors claim to conclude, today's Muslim governments are attempting to shape religious discourse and control religious knowledge in order to pursue their own national interests, end quote. And as I said, that's from an article published by the Council on Foreign Relations, which I'll link to in the description below. So would you like to introduce us to this subject, David? Yeah, thank you so much, Paul, for having me today. Um, yeah, so just a little bit about me and sort of where I'm coming from mm. with this subject. So um, as you mentioned, I've been teaching at Washington University in St. Louis since 2019. Uh, prior to that, I was at University of Edinburgh in the UK. Oh. 
And my um, research interest with this subject is in how uh, nation states, primarily in the Arab world, um, and their relationships with um, religious elites, and um, as you mentioned, how that comes together in what we call um, Islamic soft power, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, back in 2021, I published a book on this subject, focusing in particular on uh, Qatar and the UAE, um, particularly since the Arab Spring and the way these two states um, foreground or background um, different scholars and different elites. Um, more recently, part of our discussion today is a report I published for the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, um, discussing this, uh, what we can term religious tolerance promotion by authoritarian states. Uh, for example, again, states like Qatar, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, um, and other states too, um, will uh, host conferences, um, sponsor high-profile scholars, um, publish declarations, um, all dedicated to the theme of religious tolerance promotion. And that particular report um, focused on how those efforts um, direct away from um, those states' uh, human rights records in other regards. Hmm. So we're speaking about both of these um, publications really um, today. So to get back to your question about um, well, this theme of Islamic soft power, first of all, then simply um, the phrase soft power itself um, is uh, the counterpoint to hard power, hard power being states um, using armies and force to coerce other states into doing what they want. Soft right. power is the opposite. Um, right. The fact yeah. of how a state would um, use other means, um, non-coercive means to uh, have other states um, conform to their view of the world or support them in their policies, basically. Um, and then Islamic soft power being how Islam is um, mobilized or brought into brought into conversation with those efforts. Um, so with that regard, um, with my own work, it generally, um, as with many of these things, oftentimes all roads lead to the Gulf, um, particularly, for example, states like Qatar, the UAE, Bahrain, um, Saudi Arabia also, to some extent. And in my own work, I found that these states are often the most energetic when it comes to um, using their financial resources, um, enormous financial resources, to, um, again, religion or in general or Islam in particular, isn't something that can be picked up and mobilized in a simplistic way. But mm -hmm. rather what you can do is you can foreground certain interpretations at the expense of others, right? This could be by um, hosting conferences, um, sponsoring scholars, and things like that. And um, and one of the things I found with my own work on the Gulf states is that I find these efforts, as you mentioned, are more direct internationally rather than internally. Uh, the Gulf states, given their sort of very sophisticated forms of internal repression, sophisticated police forces, and so on, don't really need um, Islamic legitimacy. Um, mm. For their own populate, for the for the purpose of legitimizing their governments in the eyes of their own populations, right? Um, in contrast to other places, for example. So in that regard, then, um, when the Gulf states um, engage Islamic thinkers, they're often thinking internationally. Right. And a term I find helpful to think with, in that regard, is state branding. Um, state branding means that states, particularly small states. Um, or weak states, which it's worth bearing in mind the Gulf states are, despite their huge financial resources, all of the Gulf states, the smaller, particularly Qatar, Bahrain, the UAE, et cetera, have all had territory claimed or occupied by their larger neighbors in their recent history, um, mm -hmm. by Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, and so on. Um, so despite their wealth and resources, they are particularly vulnerable. 
And so these states have to brand themselves um, like companies in a way in order to garner investment. Oh. And this investment, as it were, in the case of the Gulf states, comes in the form of larger outside powers, mm. the US primarily, mm. um, investing in maintaining the security of the regimes. Um, right. And in our, there are many ways of doing this. Um, but one way of thinking about how these states engage Islamic soft power is positioning themselves as essential allies of the United States in this post 9-11 world. Um, of promoting, for example, moderate Islam or tolerant Islam, as these phrases are used. Um, so that's one way of thinking about, so that's sort of the way these states will brand themselves, particular havens of a particular form of religion um, in order to garner investment from the US or European states in preserving their security, but also in relation with um, other states across the Arab world as well. Um, and so uh, in this particular report, um, I published recently, we're talking about how um, there has been a recent uptick, um, for example, in what can be called um, declaration proliferation, right? Since um, 2014, um, the, so the declaration, the Marrakesh declaration, a declaration of, um, in the name of shared social values, name of tolerance of minorities and so on, was really um, set in motion a whole wave of um, conferences and declarations that will bring together um, scholars internationally and which will culminate in a declaration of shared values often named after a particular city like mecca Bukhara, mm -hmm. abu dhabi and so on and so forth um and it's a part of a new international trend whereby certain states will seek to position themselves as havens of um, dialogue and tolerance um, which is all you know, great and important things to do but at the same point they um divert attention away from other issues um, so that's reasonable. Yes, this proliferation of declarations is aimed at mainly at an external international audience rather than an internal one, because you're juxtaposing the uh, the espousal of tolerance and diversity and dialogue uh, with presumably Christians and Jews and uh, and others, contrasting that with what you call the authoritarian uh, social system within the borders of those very self same countries. So there's an interesting juxtaposition you're you're portraying there. Yeah, so one of the things I've been I put forward in this recent um, report and more recently is the fact that when we think about why these states do this, why, for example, the UAE would host major international conferences, bringing scholars together, as you mentioned, of Muslims, Christians, and Jews, and so on, to discuss um, to engage in dialogue. Right? Um, right. It's not to say that those things aren't important or to sort of belittle those efforts by any means, but rather. One thing I talk about in my work recently is that tolerance um, performs a certain kind of labor that's different than the realm of states and law. So tolerance um, is a discourse that shifts the burden of responsibility for social peace from a state to a citizen. Right. So tolerance is you tolerating me, I tolerate you. Um, our differences are due to a lack of understanding and things like that. Um, consequently, rather than the failure of a state to uphold human rights, to uphold the rule of law, um, or for example, states perpetrating structural violence, by which I mean um, distributing resources unequally or perpetrating direct violence, for example. So this discourse of tolerance um, is what's called sort of depoliticizing discourse, is that it moves conflict away from political analysis, so inequality, violence, and so on, to the realm of misunderstanding between citizens mm -hmm. and so these kind the way the one of the reasons these states engage so energetically 
in these efforts of tolerance is that it puts the burden on you and me or the burden on citizens for responsibility for conflict and conflict solution rather than responsibility on states in the realm of the rule of law um, and things like that, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's that kind of shift that I'm trying to think about Mm -hmm. when we engage in critique of um, not individuals who engage in those efforts, but rather the states that sponsor them, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you for that. So um, let me just ask, uh, the article that I quoted from earlier on, the Council on Foreign Relations article, uh, contrasts what it calls Islam and Islamism. Um, And this term Islamism has always um, confused me. I think I looked up on Wikipedia once and saw dozens of different possible conflicting definitions. But what is Islam in your expert view and how does it differ from Islam? Um, How would you understand these terms and how do they relate to each other? Yeah, so really great question. I think when I was writing my own book in 2021, um, having to actually define what you mean by Islamism, um, Mm. you quickly start to realize the term um, doesn't have an objective use, I don't think anymore. It's not a term I would really use in future. Um, Mm. In my own book at the time, I used the term Islamist um, and Islamism to refer just to the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. Because Hassan Labanda used a phrase called Islamiyun in the 1940s to refer to himself and his own um, followers. Mm. However, um, in this day and age, depending on who's using the term, Islamism effectively means something bad. I think. Right. Um, yeah. And I think there is a clear politics of nomenclature, as a politics of naming things yes. uh, at work, either by um, academics who study. Um, Islam in general, or Middle East as a region, or um, participants in those conversations, Muslims themselves, for example. Um, And so if to denigrate or demonize a particular stream of thought or Mm. particular um, group which one has critiques of, to call it Islamist um, is part of that. Uh, And I think one thing I've noticed going back to my own work, particularly on Qatar and the UAE, I think I've noticed that we can think about a coming together of scholars who we might term um, neo-traditional, who have, um, in general, very deep concerns about what they consider to be um, modern corruptions of Islam, right? Um, what they, and they use that term Islamism often to mean things that they consider to be um, modern or nefarious or corrupting influences. And for them, that often starts with Sayyid Qutba, um, so right. Egyptian scholar from the middle of the 20th century. Um, right. And so for them, usually it will mean him and those who read him and find his thought nourishing. Um, and consequently, um, in their eyes, they will oftentimes portray a kind of a straw, not, not in, in more general conversations, not when they're being precise, but in more general discourse will mean um, to see sort of the essence of what they understand having gone wrong with Islam um, attributed to him, and they will argue that he represents A, the essence of the Muslim Brotherhood, and B, also that term gets expanded because people like Osama bin Laden, ISIS figures, and so on, will read Sayyid as well. This term gets broadened to mean, on the one hand, um, the Muslim Brotherhood, all the way who sort of engage in non-violent democratic activism, all the way across to um, violent groups like ISIS and so on. Uh, at the same time, you have um, governments like the UAE 
who are deeply concerned about, on the one hand, um, violent groups like ISIS and whoever, but also non-violent activists like the Brotherhood. And mm. so that term Islamism also is useful because it's such a broad term that brings in, um, if we think more in terms of British uh, or America sort of countering extremism language too, what takes in what we would call, or yes. what the British government call, non-violent extremism and yeah. violent extremism. This yeah, idea. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the British experience. So I don't know you really speak from, because obviously I'm British from speaking from the UK, but mm. it is that there are good Muslims and bad Muslims. The good Muslims are Muslims, uh, they're not radical. They're not Islamist. You know, they have they, they practice. They pray five times a day. They fast during Ramadan, etc. And they get on with their lives and integrate. And then they're the Islamists or the radicals. These are the dangerous guys, and they may have political ideas about um, Sharia. This this word that frightens some people in the West. Um, and just understanding of the divine law, its role in society, and this is a particular issue in France, of course, which is much mm -hmm. more hard nosed secularist. But Islam, Islamism, in British context at least, uh, seems to demonize what many would see as simply normative Sunni Islam, mm. which is that Islam is not a private faith like some forms of contemporary Christian practice, which is just where you privately pray and you privately do your rituals. And it has absolutely no social and political relevance whatsoever. But Islam, of course, isn't like that at all. Uh, normatively, it's always been at a public aspect to it, a, a social aspect to it. And politics is part, many would say, it's part of the DNA of Islam. It's not some kind of uh, aberration that's to be contrasted with the real Islam. Um, but I suspect what you're saying in the UAE context and other contexts that the term has specific theological or intellectual antecedents. You mentioned Syed Qutb, for example, and his his influence, alleged or real, on uh, you know Al Qaeda and ISIS, and that's another facet of Islamism. But it seems to be so elastic and so loaded with pejorative connotations as to make it unusable as a simply a descriptive term that we can all kind of just use in everyday language yeah and no, i think in general i would agree with you i think um i think it may have been i forget who now but other scholars have begun to argue now um that as you mentioned the term islamism should not really be used anymore as a descriptive term i think it has become um not usable really and i think Certainly going forward, I would agree with that. I don't think it really has much relevance. Uh, because you said it's used, um, it's so easily expanded or contracted depending on who you're trying to talk about or um, who you're trying to um, who you're trying to sort of demonize or denigrate. I think also it's sort of, um, because um, all religious traditions and movements are so diverse as well, to try and pin down a particular thinker in a sort of simple, sim very simplistic stream of thought. Yeah. Going from, for example, I don't know, um, a modern thinker to Sayyid Qutbah to Ibn Taymiyyah to so on, it gets kind of absurd after a while um, to think that you can sort of draw these very clear lines of this person reads this person reads this person reads this person when people don't work that way. Um, no. Sometimes we're talking about religion in general or Islam in particular um, because we work in a sort of secular framework. Um, those kinds of arguments make sense to people as obscure and odd as they are. If you were to try and make those arguments in other contexts, um, yeah. so intellectuals reading, uh, sort of drawing a single line of intellectual thought, um, going back um, in some way. Yeah, so I'm reading uh, Eber Said's book Orientalism at the moment, uh, and the sense of the, the way that we in the West effortlessly impose our Orientalist categories on uh, the Arab world. I think this might be one of them. Well, religion is a, a private matter, something you do between you and your God, and, the, and then you have uh, Islam, of course, is like that because it's a religion, must be like Christianity, you know? um, but, and you had these kind of alleged aberrations, which are 
political and concerned with social justice and, and law and fairness and so on. But of course, it's all, it's all uh, baloney because it, uh, Christianity itself, of course, has been very political, is still very political. In the United States, for example, Christians tend to elect presidents uh, in the US, not mentioning anyone in particular. Um, and they tend to fund and support other certain entities in the Middle East, which are not going to go into. So it's incredibly politicized, let alone uh, the historic manifestations like Christendom, you know, the, the Christian world, which was weaponized and state run in in the Christian world in the Middle Ages. So all these terms are very elastic and fluid. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think, as you point out rightly there, um, when people use the phrase of what authentic religion ought to be, um, mm. and when they might be imagining um, someone keeping their, um, going to a particular building uh, once a week to mm. pray together, or um, keeping their beliefs private or reading a particular text in a certain way. Um, that is a um, very particular understanding of Protestant Christianity, right? The fact that uh, the essence yeah. of religion is found in one sacred text that you read in your own language, um, yeah. seeing religious authority and religious elites as um, somehow suspect always. Um, mm. There's a long history, or seeing the law, as you mentioned, um, uh, religious law as somehow um, suspicious again has its history before Islamophobia. History is anti-Semitism, of course. The idea of Christianity being a religion of love, um, yes. and then um, rejecting the Jewish law, which is all about you know uh, legalism and, and uh, works righteousness. This is how you earn your salvation. These are all tropes which, fortunately, have been debunked by recent biblical scholarship. But yeah, see, but you know, again, going back to religions of love, religion of law, right? This is an older history has yeah. now been repurposed yeah. against. Um, Exactly. Uh, Islam, right? And so, yeah, I think this idea, which again sort of ignores um, all the other Christian traditions too. Um, and sometimes these things get forgotten also when we talk about um, the way one imagines what religion ought to be. Um, it's very, very particular to European history, which then has sort of percolated unevenly throughout the world. Um, mm. Colonialism. Um, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, European history, as self understood by us Europeans, never includes Islam, even though we had a wonderful Muslim civilization in Andalusia, in, in the Iberian Peninsula, in Spain, for centuries, mm -hmm. six, seven centuries, which was the, uh, the, the leading light uh, of civilization in the whole of Europe. And that, that's mm -hmm. kind of just quietly bracketed out and forgotten about when we talk about Europe today. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just curious to ask a further question about uh, Islamic soft power. As mm -hmm. it's projected towards the West, Mm -hmm. um, what forms does it take? I'm mean, thinking to the United States and to Europe particularly. You mentioned mm -hmm. how it works in, uh, perhaps internally uh, with conferences and the proliferation of declarations. But in terms of the Western audience, by mm -hmm. measure of the populations of the West, what forms does it take, do you think? Well, I think there's a couple of interesting things to think about how um, what I would see through some of the relations with the United States, um, who is mm -hmm. sort of remains sort of the major ally of the Gulf states, for example, mm -hmm. how um, the way... The U.S. has sort of engaged Islam um, has changed in recent years since 9/11. I would say. Hmm. I think that um, I think uh, Selma Mahmoud wrote an article about this um, in previous years. How initially um, she wrote about how the U.S. would initially see promoting secularism um, as the solution to what it understood as anti-U.S. feeling um, in the Arab world in the hmm. aftermath of 9/11. Yeah. And that would mean that the U.S. Um, through um, funding, sort of funding NGOs and things like that, would see um, funding anyone that they identified as secular. Um, even they're critical of the U.S. For, of supporting secularism in some form or other as um, the solution to the problem of anti-U.S. sentiment. 
However, in recent years, I think going back maybe 10 years of the Arab Spring kind of time, that has changed, um, I argue, from away from the US seeking to promote secular or secular forms of Islam, rather to promoting what it perceives as authentic or traditional um, religious elites. Because um, those who it is kind of a kind of a coming together between a sort of um, conservative Christian right in the U.S. and kind of a conservative Muslim right, um, both in the U.S. and also in the Arab world too, around what authentic religion ought to be or what it should look like. Mm-hmm. And um, for example, we can see this phrase. Um, in a shift from uh, Judeo-Christian civilization to Abrahamic civilization, mm. right? You have this kind of, um, so rather than thinking about it more as sort of a West versus the East, more about how you now have some different constellations of groups um, that could be categorized as more conservative religious right and a progressive religious left um, across in a more global sense now, I think is different now, rather than, back in the initial post 9-11 period when sort of promoting secularism was um, the goal and different states, different regions. And so for example, um, different Arab regimes will position themselves as secular um, to sort of position themselves as allies. And now I think particularly with state, let's say the UAE, you have a state that positions itself as um, promoting a form of authentic traditional religion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's different now. And so there's there's been this shift, I think, in how states brand themselves in the eyes of, for example, the US. Um, That's interesting. But there's also the case, I mean, one of the the security worries of Western governments, as far as I can see, is what they call, uh, I'm not saying this, what they call the the spread of Wahhabism. There's a Wahhabi ideology, as they call it, Hmm. uh, which which involves Saudi Arabia pumping lots of petrodollars into the West in 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 terms of producing literature and dawah and building mosques, funding mosques, funding imams who go to mosques. Mm. You know, it's, it's a source of great anxiety, uh, particularly in places like France, again, Germany, Britain to some extent. Um, is that still an ongoing, uh, uh, I'm thinking with the, the, the current rulership in Saudi, is this still their top priority? Is this still a, a thing? Mm. Um, and and, and are, is the West right to be worried about this? Is this just a form of paranoia or... Um, because as the way Saudi presents itself, it doesn't see itself as in any way promoting terrorism. On the contrary, it sees itself completely against it for various reasons. You, well, because of faith reasons, but other reasons as well. Um, is this concern legitimate in your view? And is it still, um, is this um, soft power projection in, if I can call it that, in the West still a thing ongoing now? Well, I mean, yeah, I've always avoided, uh, I don't know what the words, never had much interest in um the coerce between Islam and security studies um, is not something I particularly, the literature, I don't find the literature particularly enriching or particularly stimulating. So I don't think I can really, uh, so yeah, I don't think there's, um, there's been a kind of sort of cottage industry of terrorism studies um, and that has emerged since 9-11. I don't think when you read that kind of work, you sort of oftentimes we don't really have much understanding of religion and how it really works. Um, so this notion that religions will be picked up and make people do things in a sort of pathological way mm. simply by reading a book um, mm. is kind of bizarre. I don't. It just, that's not how people work, right? You no, can't absolutely. give someone a book again, say a or even say me or whoever, um, 
and then they'll act in a particular way simply based on reading literature. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's not how human beings work in the real world. So mm -hmm. to perceive, um, to sort of portray, in my view, to portray that's had a very unilinear um, fear yeah. of circulating literature as re as that alone. Because of course, the great going as someone who's not that particularly interested in terrorism studies, my one of the my understandings, one of the debates would be is that what comes first, sort of the literature or the grievance, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, of course, for somebody to, in France or wherever, to read a piece of literature um, and find it inspiring to do something horrendous, you need to have a grievance first, right? right. Make that literature appealing, rather than simply reading a book produced by a sad press, for example. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that's where sort of the divide comes and why, um, and if, if somebody was working for, say, a security service or something, um, there's a certain reticence, I think, to um, take the gurus seriously, um, I think, you might say. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so in that sense, I wouldn't necessarily find, I think it's, uh, yeah, not being as someone who works in that field, that's kind of a view. So I think, um, but yeah, that's, I guess that's kind of my perspective on that, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, and what's the second part, the other part of that question was about, oh, but with Saturday Review in general, you know, I think what I found really interesting is that for so long, when people study Saudi Arabia, there was this idea that um, the way it was portrayed, there was this sort of uh, deal between the Wahhabi scholarly elite and um, the Saudi, the uh, Asarod yeah. family, yeah. which meant that the Asarod family was dependent upon the Wahhabi elites, um, which are very particular, deeply conservative social values um, for their legitimacy. But what's strange, I think, in the past few years with Mohammed bin Salman is that those, that elite and those values have kind of marginalized overnight. It seems. Mm -hmm. um, again, having, and I think um, what one sees in sort of the way that um, those kinds of sort of uh, society has been changed very, very quickly um, yes. makes you wonder like, was it really, was it so lacking in importance that you could simply dismiss many of those um, uh, sort of, um, yeah, dismiss many of those of legal and social norms almost overnight. And so sort of go into mm. very rapid social liberalization. Did it mean it was never that important at all in the first place? Um, well, I did wonder, you see some of these, you know, concerts that have gone on in, you know, Halloween festivals allegedly sponsored by the authorities in Saudi Arabia. Mm. You, you wonder, you know, had they been magnified out of all proportion? You know, is, is this what your average Saudi Arabian citizen experiences in life? Or is this just kind of a highly specific series of events um, with the approval of MBS or not, I don't know. Idea that I meant to make a point, mm. but I'm not really changing the overall structure and mores mm. of Saudi society. I, I mean, this is a huge different subject. I don't want to get into that, but mm. I, I, it's a bit suspiciously sort of the uh, the glamorous sort of pop concerts or whatever mm. we saw. If they are really, what are they really telling us about reality and and how much of this is kind of theatre and how much of it is real shifts? Mm. But um, anyway, these are questions. I don't have answers. No, no, exactly, exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the, the other thing, um, coming back to the article on the Council of Foreign Relations, which I'll link to uh, in the description below, it, it, it is, in its conclusion, it says something quite interesting, and I think so we can bring it up to date, really, particularly with the uh, the, the World Cup, which just mm -hmm. ended in uh, The article concludes, a shift is taking place around the world, it says, and this article was written a couple of years ago, as doubts build uh, about the future of liberalism and the US-led liberal international order, the scare quotes are in the article, with the global consensus around liberalism fraying, 
more space is opening up for ideological combat. If the United States continues to withdraw from its role in promoting a predictable world order, competition around Islam, who defines it, who speaks for it, and who gets to mobilize it for their own ends, looks likely only to intensify. And whether that's true or not, that, that uh, I have no problem with that as a statement. But what I'm interested in, in what I perceive, wrongly or rightly, is the Muslim world's growing popular confidence in pushing back against uh, Western-backed secular liberalism and the US-led liberal international order, particularly in flashpoints like the, the World Cup and the way that Qatar was singled out for alleged sins, you know, alleged uh, egregious behaviors like having an Islamic understanding of uh, relationships between men and women and men and men and so on, as if there's some, something that they should just uh, cease to be Muslim for the sake of the World Cup. And of course, Qatar pushed back on that. And um, as did virtually the whole Muslim social media, as I could see, it helped to galvanize uh, and really give a sense of identity that this, the Ummah and the way, so I'm rambling on here, but the way the Marrakech, the Marrakech Morocco uh, was supported uh, in a very non-nationalist way by Egyptians and everyone, all the Muslims around the world, identified with this football team, particularly because of what they did, not just winning games, but the way they treated their mothers and, and publicly uh, acknowledged them and embraced them after the match, the way they did sujood, where they did prayer to God after the match and maybe before the match and thanks for uh, what happened. They were very explicitly a Muslim team. Mm. And, and this seemed to inspire an awful lot of people globally, mm. as far as I could see from the social media. And is this kind of growing social uh, popular confidence referenced in the article, is it going to have geopolitical ripples? Is it going to matter? Because uh, we're not dealing here at state level so much, although it was mm. organized by a state. We're dealing here with the, the man and the woman in the Arab street and elsewhere in London, particularly. Uh, mm. um, really being inspired by this, Islamically, I mean, Islamically inspired, not just by football, but by a sense of pride mm. or confidence in Islamic identity, which mm. was transnational, Ummah-wide, rather than just nationalistic. Mm. Is this a thing that you, is this, is this something going on here, you think? That's a really interesting question, a really interesting thing to think about. I think, um, yeah, I think one of the things that I sort of was thinking about um, and noticed during the World Cup, um, in a similar way, was there was lots of, um, uh, critiques of Qatar um, for sort of human rights record and so on, which are important to have their place. But I think what a lot of people notice, things are picking up on, is that um, states and teams sort of grew a backbone when it came to a tiny Arab state in yeah. a way they wouldn't do with other states in the world. Um, and I think that kind of disjuncture was noticeable um, without meaning to um, belittle those critiques at all. Um, at the same time, and then, you know, as you said, sort of the Qatari response was kind of a sort of shrug of the shoulders. Um, and similarly, also, um, an Arab media in general was kind of disinterested in that critique. Um, at the same time, from the other side, too, of course, the other noticeable distinction also, which I think speaks to your point, too, is about um, the very visible and vocal support of Palestine um, by the Moroccan team. The Qatari government had no interest in um, sort of pushing, um, diminishing those. And that was very vocal by supporters being interviewed around Doha, Yes. Um, in the stadiums, again, the Moroccans waving the Palestinian flag, yes. which again was also similarly sort of ignored by um, the Western media, by and large, I think, especially yes. in the US. And so I think, as you said, there's sort of this much more uh, sort of, if we could speak to a general um, disinterest in having terms of discussions dictated by a sort of um, 
a certain kind of um, Western set of norms, we might say. Um, bearing in mind, of course, that all institutions are incredibly diverse and can accommodate all kinds of um, all kinds of views. Um, okay. Um, the other, uh, my last question really is to do with your your current work. Actually, uh, you've written uh, some books before, and I, I, I will link actually to your uh, Academia page where there's a number of fascinating articles that we can all just access by going to the link um, to, to look at your work, all, all centered around these themes we've been discussing. But what is your current book project? Yes, my current project that I'm just starting is looking at um, the politics of interfaith dialogue, um, primarily in the UAE, um, but also the Gulf more broadly. Um, mm. Thinking about, um, again, sort of thinking about what it means to engage interfaith dialogue in an authoritarian state. Um, I think sometimes you have, um, what I become more interested in, in the case of, say, the UAE, you have um, sort of sessions of interfaith dialogue um, that are sort of overseen by the UAE authorities. Sometimes you'll have sort of Emirati ministers from, say, the Ministry of Tolerance, right, um, sort of uh, engaging also in interfaith dialogue between some Christian, Muslim, and Jewish figures. Um, I think the point is that what I'm interested in is what does that tell us about um, religion in the modern days of how are mm. uh, what are sort of the issues seen in these dialogues how what is the problem that's seen in needing of being resolved um, and oftentimes when we think of interfaith dialogue we think about it happening in um, democratic contexts like in the United States the United Kingdom or so on but in a different kind of authoritarian context what are these dialogues like mm-hmm. is something that I'm looking at um, currently. So this is this will be a research turned into a book, presumably in due course. Is that yeah, the, uh... next few, in over the next few years? That's the plan. Right, right, okay. And just a, a final question about any other the other books you've written. What was your book, your last book that you uh, you published? Yeah, so the last book I published was in 2021, and it was called Rivals in the Gulf: um, Use of Al Qaeda, Abdullah bin Bayya, and the Qatar UAE contest over the Arab Spring and the Gulf Crisis. And that so that book looked at these two uh, sort of arguably kind of iconic figures, we might say. Yusuf al Qadawi, who passed away very recently, oh, yeah. um, and then Abdullah bin Bayya, a Mauritanian scholar based in, um, based primarily in the UAE, and looking at, thinking back to the themes of our discussion so far, um, thinking about how these two states, Qatar and the UAE, had relations between these two scholars, and the way those two particular scholars um, articulated um, political ideas as the Arab Spring unfolded um, and came to these who once they had a very close relationship and came to diverge in 2013, 2014. And ultimately, uh, Sheikh bin Bayer came to sort of set up his own sort of uh, rival um, enterprise, as it were, um, based mm. in the UE. As the, because initially, sort of Qatar was the state that really led the way with what we might call Islamic soft power. Um, whereas in more recent years, it's really become the UAE that has become. Mm. Um, the major states on the international stage, I think, absolutely, in this regard. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. Well, thank you very much uh, indeed, uh, Dr. David uh, Warren from uh, Washington University in, in the US. You, you obviously, I can tell, an Englishman. Uh, <laughs> like me, so, um, uh, And you went to, I think you did your PhD at the University of Manchester, was it, here in England? Yes, that's right. I did my PhD uh, in Manchester, and I worked in Edinburgh for a while, uh-huh. and then came out to St. Louis uh, since 2019. Gosh, uh, three fantastic. I was in Edinburgh myself a few months ago, an amazing city. I went to the university there. Beautiful, oh. uh, beautiful ca- campus. Uh, some of the buildings are amazing. Mm. But anyway, thank you very much uh, indeed uh, for your time, your expertise. And I'm sure this would be a great benefit. And I'll link to uh, the article and the uh, Academia page, etc., in the description below, where people can, you can, we can all benefit further from your 
um, your research. Uh, thank you very much. Till next thank time. You thank you for having me. Thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.